And welcome back. Let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for all that you have done for us in Jesus. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, our hearts, bring us together in the unity of the faith. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And so our title today in this lesson is Ephesians in the Heart. And the memory verse is from Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. And it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Anybody heard this text before? (laughs) Do you understand what it means? Is, is Is it very clear? God's grace, God's grace. I I encourage you to, uh, in friendly and and gracious ways, to have conversations with your friends across the circle and say, what do you understand God's grace to be? See what kind of answers you get. God's grace. You know what the common answer is? The one that I predict, if you were to poll 10 or 20 of your friends, what's God's grace? Say it. Unmerited favor. Yes, I heard two people say the same thing. Unmerited favor. Is, has anybody heard that answer? That is a classic answer. Unmerited. And unmerited, of course, means something we have not earned. And it is certainly true that God's grace is not our paycheck. It's not a medal. It's not a reward for some achievement on our part. That is certainly true. So to the degree that they're trying to say, hey, uh, the grace that we receive from God is not owed to you because of some uh, achievement on your part, some work. Well, that's probably true. In fact, that is true. But that only focuses on the process of receiving the grace. It's not actually telling us what the grace is. For instance, if you were dying of thirst in a desert and someone gave you water that you did not earn or merit or pay for in any way, we could say this water is unmerited. But water is water. So to say grace is unmerited favor is only telling you how you receive it, that you haven't earned it, but it still doesn't tell us what the grace is. Right. Favor. It's favor. It's a favor. Since it's true that God's grace is a gift to us, something we have not earned, something we are not owed, something that we uh, do not receive by right, listen to this question carefully. Does that mean we do not deserve God's grace? No, no. Because this is how it's, it's have you ever heard that we're undeserving? Yes. yes. So I'm going to say it again. Many times. Since God's grace is something we have not earned, we are not owed, we do not receive it by right, is that the same thing as saying we do not deserve God's grace? And that goes, the answer to that question goes directly to how you understand God's law. If we see God's law as human law, then we deserve what we earn. We deserve rewards or we deserve punishments. And since we're getting grace when we've been sinners, we don't deserve the grace is how it's often taught. What we deserve is we deserve punishment. This is how it's taught. Yes or no? Okay. But if you understand design law, then deserve means what's morally right, what love compels. So look at this analogy. Does a child born 
with a terminal condition, an illness of some kind, deserve to be treated with kindness, compassion, and offered a remedy if one exists? Did the child do anything to earn that? Is it owed to them in some legalistic or mechanistic achievement way? Why would the child deserve it, then, if they haven't done anything to merit it? Their worth as a person. Because they are loved. Their worth is worth because they're loved. So they're deserving it by who they are, not by what they do or did. Okay? Legal systems, which is the human systems, which are the sin-sinner systems, which are the created being systems, it's all about what people do. God's kingdom is about who you are. So a child, by being human, deserves the love of their parents if their parents are Christ-like people, yes? yes. They deserve the love simply by being their child. Right. Exactly. Not because the child earned it. Do we, do, do we have value and worth to God? Not because of our achievements or hard works or accomplishments or failings, but because of who we are to God. What he has created us to be, let us make man in our image. What he has invested in us, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, to become part of this species. Do we have value and worth because of who we are, not because of what we do? When the Bible describes Jesus as growing in wisdom and stature, and favor. favor. And what, what did we say grace was? Unmerited what? Favor. So you know, the Greek there that's translated favor is the same exact Greek that's translated grace. The same word. So Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and grace with God and man. Did Jesus deserve his Father's grace? Yes. Mm-hmm. In a way different than we deserve it? Did Jesus receive grace from his Father as our human substitute, given freely from his Father, or did Jesus have to earn it from his Father? The Father gave his grace to Jesus as the second Adam, as our substitute, in the same way he gives you and me grace, freely. Jesus didn't have to earn grace from his Father through some system of employment or quest fulfillment. Jesus, as a human, received the free grace of his Father and, in Jesus' case, was able to employ and utilize that grace to achieve the outcome of our salvation. But that grace was given freely. And it's given to the just and the unjust. The Greek word translated grace is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis or charis. And it's goodwill, loving kindness, favor, merciful kindness, by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps them, strengthens them, increases them in the Christian faith, knowledge, affections, and kindles in them the, uh, to exercise uh, the Christian virtues. This is what the word means, uh, according to the lex- lexicon. I mean, according to the, the, uh, the, the Strong's lexicon. This is exactly what Paul wrote in Romans 2.4. The kindness of God 
God's kindness leads you towards repentance. The goodness of God, who he is, wins us back. And this kindness of God is freely given because of who God is. We see God's grace, his grace in every action, all his activities, which are the outflow of his character, in which always, understand, God always fights against evil. He always opposes corruption. He always stands against sin. He always heals, always renews, recreates, cleanses, and ultimately destroys death and brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is what God's grace is doing. God's grace is the disbursement of himself, his energy, his love, his life-giving power, his presence, his every act, but is most fully seen in response to rebellion and sin. As Paul wrote, where sin abounds, God was, get your mind around what I'm about to say, God was just as gracious before sin. And his grace was present and active before sin. But after sin, his grace became more active and, and revealed in ways that were never seen before because it was not needed to function in those ways. Give you a metaphor. Right. Sunlight has antibacterial and antiviral power in the sunlight that's always there, but its antibacterial and antiviral power was never seen until there were bacterial and viral pathogens. But it was still always there. God's grace has always been the same, but when the sin came, his grace began to deal with, address, remedy, resolve, eradicate the sin problem. So we see God's grace talking with Adam in the cool of the day before Adam sinned. But we see his grace more powerfully revealed when God gently called Adam, Adam, where are you? When he's hiding behind the bush. We see God's grace in his patient forbearance towards lost sinners prior to the flood, waiting to act until there was no other option, until there's only one righteous man left on the earth and his family. And then we see God's grace in bringing the flood as a therapeutic intervention to keep open the avenue for Messiah For without that action, no human is saved. It was an act of therapeutic intervention. But we see God's grace most fully revealed in sending Jesus to take up humanity broken and damaged by Adam to overcome where we never could. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace grace and truth. John 1, 16 and 17. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ, Ephesians 4, 7. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. The grace of God is indeed a gift, like water to a person dying of thirst. The gifting is gracious, But grace is more than the act. It is the substance of God's character, his love, truth, methods, power, glory, righteousness, fully manifested in Jesus. That's his grace. When we receive God's grace, we are receiving the presence and power of God via the indwelling spirit. We are receiving the gift of Jesus. And we can say with Paul, it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. In Isaiah, where it talks about this new baby born to us, one of its names is the Father. Oh, in Isaiah. Yeah. And for unto us a child is born, 
His name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father, and it's referring to this child. Yes, Jesus, yes. Mm -hmm. Yep, the fullness of God was in him bodily. Mm. Fullness of the God was in him bodily. So, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 functions like a map at a mountain's summit that identifies the peaks on the horizon. As Paul orients us to our blessed place in the vast landscape of the plan of salvation, the scenery covers the full span of salvation history from eternity past through God's grace-filled actions in Christ to eternity future. God's redemption of believers reflects divine initiatives taken before the foundation of the world, which are now being worked out in our lives. These pre-creation strategies will be fully accomplished at the end of time. Then all things, both in heaven and on earth, will be gathered together or united in Christ, and God's plan for the fullness of time will be fulfilled. Then we will experience fully God's mysterious plan. In the, in the present, we may be certain that the Christ-centered salvation in which we stand is an important part of God's wide-reaching plan for the redemption of all things. So I want to focus on this paragraph, on the, on the question where it talks about, and they're, they're using this language from Ephesians. You can find it multiple times in Ephesians, the idea of God's mystery or the mystery of God's plan or the, uh, some, some translation, the secret plan. Why is God's plan of salvation called a mysterious plan or God's secret plan? Why was it secret? What, what made it a mystery or difficult to understand? You know, it's all, it, 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 Paul uses language throughout. The mysterious, the mystery of God. Why? Why is it a mystery? Is God the author of confusion? Jesus said in John eighteen twenty, I have spoken openly to the world. Jesus replied, I, I always taught in the synagogues or the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. So Jesus says he is open, he's truthful, he's not about secrets. Paul elsewhere says in Ephesians 5.11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. John wrote in 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is just a little bit of darkness. No. <laughs> no darkness at all. No darkness at all. So if God is a source of light no darkness at all, why is this plan of salvation called a mystery, a secret? Because his ways are not like our ways, and his thoughts are not like ours. Uh, she's quoting Isaiah. His ways are not like our ways, and uh, his thoughts are not like our thoughts. Well, the mystery of iniquity is the other Because of love, how is, is, we're going to be learning of his love for a lifetime, and it's even the little bit that we have now is just still so hard to understand. The suggestion is that because he's infinite and that we can, and it will for all eternity be learning more, that makes it a mystery. If, did, I, did, I, yeah. did I say that wrong? Did I represent you correctly? Yeah, yeah. okay. It's also, mystery Christ yeah. in us, the hope of glory. That's exactly right. Mis- this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is the mystery of the plan of salvation. So why is it called a mystery? Why is it called a secret? The secret plan, the mystery. He also talks about the mystery of Christ in you, in personal salvation, the mystery of the Gentiles being included with the Jews, that we all become one body in Christ. That's part of the mystery as well. But it's connected to the mystery of transforming us to be 
um, Christ-like in character. Why is it called a mystery? I think it's mysterious because you, no one in the universe would have guessed this would be the solution to the problem. It's a mystery of how God figured out or knew how to solve the mystery of iniquity. So John 1, 4 through 5, this, this shed any light on our subject. In him was life. It's talking about Jesus. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So there's a mystery of salvation Paul talks about. It's the secret plan of God. But is, is the Bible making the case that God, Jesus, is the source of light, the source of enlightenment, not the source of darkness, not the source of mystery, not the source of secrets. See, they're open. They want our comprehension. They want our understanding. Jesus in John 15, 15 calls into understanding friendship. So God is shining light, 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 but this still remains a mystery because, because, because the light's shining into the darkness, but the darkness is under... In this text, oh, you can put that text back up. In this text, What's the darkness? Is this talking like space, the final frontier? What's, what's the darkness? Oh, that's right. These are, ta- these are human hearts and minds it's talking about. Human hearts and minds are, are dark here. And Jesus is, is, is the light that is to lighten us. In Jesus' time, he taught in parables and uh, because of the hardness of your heart. So, so why do people prefer darkness? So the, tr- so the light would be the symbol, light would be a symbol of the infinite truth, love, righteousness, holiness of God. That's the light. First Timothy 6.16, God lives in unapproachable light, it says. Darkness then would be symbolic of the opposite of that, right? Lies, selfishness, sin, evil coercion, all this kind of stuff. So why do people prefer the darkness of the lies, the fear, the, the selfishness, the coercion? Why do they prefer that to the light of truth and, and love and freedom? Why, why do they prefer the darkness? They don't know better. They don't know better. They don't want to change. Say that again. Change. Jesus said that, that light has come to the world, but men prefer darkness lest they're they exposed. So what? So so there's an underlying motive to that. Less they prefer the darkness, lest their evil deeds be exposed. What's the emotion behind that? Fear. 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 Like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. As soon as they sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. afraid because they were naked. They were exposed. They were exposed. You can see me. I promise. If anyone, if you had, if anyone you want, snap, and you suddenly had all your clothes taken off right here. <laughs> Every one of you would want to run out of this room right now. <laughs> Me too. It's like, okay. <laughs> Isn't that true? We're exposed. We don't like it. <laughs> it's true, right? Yes. So people prefer the darkness. They prefer the darkness because they don't want to be, because they're afraid. They're afraid because the infection of sin, which causes people to feel fear, guilt, shame, and, and motivated by fear, people fear rejection, fear exploitation, fear punishment. Remember, perfect love casts out 
fear because fear has to do with punishment. punishment. So people were afraid they're going to be held accountable, afraid they're going to be found fault with, afraid they're going to be criticized, afraid they're going to be called names, afraid they're going to be punished. And they don't trust others because having been unconverted, having fear and self-centered hearts, they project that out and they believe that everyone else is like them in heart. They can't be trusted. And so the only way they can be safe then is by controlling others, having more power than others, having more money than others, dominate, to, to control information, to misrepresent, to lie themselves wow. so they can set the narrative because they want a narrative that will make them look good. Mm. That's the only way they can succeed in this world, lying, exploiting, abusing, gaining more power over others, to tell the truth, especially truth about themselves. Oh, that idea is scary. Makes them feel vulnerable, so they prefer the darkness. Yes. I think that's an interesting point you made because Jesus was on the cross naked. It was his full exposure of love that he was, you know, he would take on that. And what's it say in Hebrews about the crucifixion? What did he despise? The shame. He despised the shame. shame. Nullifying it for the joy set before him. He nullified it at the cross. Yeah. So how does God accomplish his purpose, the salvation of humanity, and the eradication from sin from his universe. How does he accomplish that? How can he do that? If, if you, you, you guys were tracking what I was describing here, working in the hearts of men, how men prefer the darkness because they're scared of what the light will do. But they can't be saved without the light, without the truth. So how does he accomplish his purpose? Can God bring unity, eradicate fear, selfishness, sin, rebellion by imposing laws and using force to punish lawbreakers. No, it's not possible. He only calls people to hide more, to put up little facades, to pretend, to behave on the outside, but inside they're stewing in rebellion. Hence the example of Israel. Israel who crucified Jesus, Mm -hmm. keeping the rules. Exactly. The The only way to eliminate sin, you have to eliminate the roots that operate in hearts and minds. You have to actually eliminate the fear, the rebellion, the lies, the selfishness in the heart and replace it with truth, love, and godly character. This is why the Bible teaches it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We are one by seeing his self-sacrificial love for us that's so contrary to what we would have done and that we are one to the point, wow, if he would give his life for me, then I can trust him thought of uh, that from the first text that you brought up that we are God's workmanship has been circling back through my thinking the whole time we've been talking about this and so if we somehow will open our hearts and allow God to do his workmanship with us then results that we either can be proud of or that we can be thankful for are manifest otherwise you don't want people to see how little he has been able to do with you, how little you have responded to his workmanship. I love that fact you tied that back in because I want to make it very clear. Can we, through our own individual efforts, work a change of our own heart? No. no. So, so we are God's workmanship. He works in us, but they, we are also... Paul, in the very same text, that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. 
can God work in someone's heart to bring them to salvation without their participation and cooperation? No, it's a cooperative effort. We cannot do it without God, and God cannot do it. Why can't I? Isn't he all-powerful? Can't he do anything? This is a classic trap question. Do you know there's certain things God cannot do? It says in, in James, he cannot be tempted by evil. And the God as we know him cannot sin. And he cannot create character. He can create sinless beings. Characters are developed by the choices of the beings. Lucifer was sinless, but he developed a rebellious and sinful character. Adam and Eve were sinless. They developed a corrupt character. The purpose of the tree and the knowledge of good and evil was for Adam to develop a righteous character. They had the ability in Eden without external aid from the Holy Spirit within themselves in their perfect sinless state, they could have developed a righteous character, but they didn't. And that's why Christ had to take up humanity, damaged by Adam, and restore in humanity a righteous, develop a righteous character. So if you like Ellen White's writing, she wrote in Zyre of Ages, page 761, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give. But Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept him. Tim, I'm thankful that the light he does shed on us as we come close to us, he gives it to us in healing doses. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, He leads us uh, as we're able to comprehend and apply, and he pauses when, when we decide to take a break from his plan. He will not force us because, and this is why it's a cooperative effort. God has the power to, to reach into your brain and make a change against your will. He has the power to do that. But if he did that, you wouldn't be you anymore. You'd be some other being. You'd either be a robot or some other creature that now has been replaced. But your individuality would embrace. God can erase our individualities and replace it. But the only way he saves us individually is by getting us to agree and say, yes, I choose that for my heart, my mind, my care. I want to be that way. And then as we make those choices, he empowers us to live out those choices. But God is in control. Yes, God is in control of what God controls. God is in control of what God controls. And God does not control your choices. That's right. You won't violate your free will. That's right. But God is in control of what God controls. And that's what many people fail. They stop on the first half of that. God is in control, but he doesn't control everything. One of the things he controls is the law of liberty. He controls his laws. And the law of liberty is that you actually have freedom, and he will not violate his own law because he controls the law of liberty and leaves you free. Yes. <clears throat> so with, with all this saying, then, then just keep in mind, do you see how Romanism, the idea that God's law works like Roman law, has completely corrupted the, the Christianity and obstructs the plan of salvation? All right, Monday's lesson. But God, those two words must be the most hope-filled ones known to humankind. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul describes the grim past of the audience, sharing the plight of all humanity that they were bent toward rebellion against God, their lives dominated by sin and Satan, but God, who is rich in mercy, and what did God do for them and for us? He made us alive with Christ. Christ's resurrection is our own. He raised us up with Christ. Christ's ascension is our own. He, in heaven, we, he seated us with Christ. Christ's coronation is our own. We are not just bystanders to the cosmos, cosmos shifting events of Christ's life. life. God takes these remarkable actions, not because of any merit in us, but because of his grace. 
and he intends believers to live in solidarity with Jesus and practice good works. So first question, um, why is all humanity bent toward rebellion against God? Why? Why is that so? What is the reason? What's the cause of that? So when did you, just answer for yourself, when did you choose to become a sinner? Did you ever have a choice in your life to be other than a sinner? No. Either saved by grace or not, but still a sinner. Get your mind around that. One of the big kind of assumed fraudulent ideas operating in most of Christianity is that it's your fault you're a sinner. You chose it. You're guilty. No. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51.5. We're born with a condition that we didn't choose. We have no guilt for the condition with which, we've, with which we find ourselves in. It's not our fault. In fact, it was impossible for anybody other than Adam and Eve and Jesus, who special circumstances there, it was impossible for any other human to be born in a condition other than a sinner. So you're saying sin is not a choice? I'm saying exactly that. Sin is a state of being. What is the choice is whether you are going to take the remedy or not. And this is what Jesus taught Nicodemus. Sin is a state of being. Think of an HIV-infected man and an HIV-infected woman have a child born HIV-infected. What did the child do wrong? Nothing. Is the child legally guilty? No. Does the child have a condition that without intervention or remedy will have symptoms and result in death? We are born with a condition, the condition of sin, that we didn't choose. That's fear and self-centeredness. Well, what is the definition of sin? Anything that is out of trust or not of faith is sin, according to Paul in Romans. Or sin is lawlessness outside the law. And the law is the law of love. And so we're not born operating on the law of love. We're born operating on the law of fear and selfishness. So we're born in a state outside the law of love. Uh, We have a new infant in the room today. I promise you that that new infant does not think about whether mommy and daddy are well-fed and rested through the night. It doesn't. That new infant will not, sit, will not keep quiet and keep from crying in the night when the infant is hungry and thirsty and wet. That infant will cry and that infant will act selfishly because it was born in sin, conceived in iniquity. That's the prime drives. Me first. Me is first. sin the transgression of the law? Isn't that a choice? So transgression of the law is a King James interpretation of the, of the language. Language. Look at mo- more of your modern translations. They all say sin is lawlessness. <laughs> so sin is outside the law. Then the question is what law? Are we talking Roman law, a system of rules that you've broken? Or are we talking the law of life that God built reality to operate upon? We are born out of harmony with how God has constructed life. We are not born in love. We are born in fear and selfishness. Aren't those our tendencies, though? This is the condition of sin. That's right. We are born in sin. But tendencies are not sin. We are born with a condition that is out of harmony with how... Uh, so so are you, are, is it your position that children are born sinless? I don't think we need to baptize babies because they're sinners. No, but our, of course, because what is baptism? What do we understand baptism to be? When you say we don't need to baptize babies, you're talking about a ceremony. Yeah. You're talking about a sacrament. Is there any benefit in that? No. So, so it's a symbol of what? What's the actual symbol of baptism teaching? There, there is a baptism that every saved person has to have. There's not one person that is saved will not, that will not have it, but it's not water. It's what the water baptism symbolizes. 
that the heart and mind are submersed in the Holy Spirit and recreated with a new heart and mind. That's what the symbolizes. So an infant cannot experience that because they don't have the heart and mind developed enough to actually uh, be reborn in a new heart and mind. Right. So The Catholic Church was baptizing babies because they thought they were sinners and they needed to be saved before they died. No, the Catholic Church was baptizing babies because they taught that babies were born legally guilty, right. and if they don't get the sacrament of the church, they're required to be sent to hell to be tortured for all eternity. So this is a legal mechanism because they have a Roman system of justice and a Roman system of understanding. So we are born under guilt. And I'm saying we're not born under guilt. Uh, yes? Just a comment that I think one of the confusing things that we, we, we think about this subject is sin as a condition versus sinful acts, which are the symptoms of the condition. Right. So... The sinful acts are the symptoms. This were, yeah, thank you for that. But what, what did John say to Nicodemus? Uh, Jesus say to Nicodemus? Okay, but if you read the whole dialogue there, he describes the process of the verdict. What is the verdict? He gives a verdict. He uses the word verdict. Light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness, unless they stand condemned already. They stand condemned already. Ready. And so the, the issue is, like an, it really is, HIV-infected baby is born with a condition that's terminal. So we are born, according to Scripture, dead in trespass and sin. We have a terminal sin condition. Without Jesus, let's put it this way. If Jesus never came, can any human have eternal life? No. Why not? Because they have all did bad things. Even an infant who was born and died in, in childbirth. They, they took two breaths and died. Can that, that infant have eternal life without Jesus? No. If Jesus never comes... Can they have eternal life? You know, the promise of Genesis 3.15, the Messiah is coming so, so humans can be saved. If Jesus doesn't come, can an infant who dies after two breaths have eternal life because they didn't commit a sin? Mm. Or will they still be lost eternally? If they're going to be lost eternally, then you understand it's not about the deeds, it's about the condition. We're born dead in trespass and sin. We have a terminal condition that requires remedy. Jesus came to fix that condition. Now, so an HIV-infected baby born... As a terminal condition. But the baby didn't do anything wrong. They're not guilty. They're not under legal condemnation. They're under the condemnation of the condition itself. We are born in sin, and, and this sinful condition, without intervention from God, will have symptoms. And those symptoms we call sins. And this is what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 5. You say if you commit adultery, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you lust in your heart. It's a heart condition, not an act condition. You say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate in your heart. The, the corruption of the heart leads to the bad behaviors. Okay? Well, let me finish the, the metaphor. Yes, but, but even if you don't make the choice, and this is Paul in Romans, in Romans chapter 7, um, even if you don't make the choice to commit the act, you're still just as corrupt in heart and character and just as unsaved because you're not healed yet. So this is what Paul says in Romans 7. I would not know what sin was if it wasn't for the commandment that said don't covet so tell me what behavior you can do not to covet. What behavior? What behavior? What deed can you do not to covet? When you're coveting, that's a deed. No, it's not. Covet is not a behavior. It happens totally in the heart. There's no action there. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's a deed in the heart. But it's not an action. 
It's a motive of the heart. And this is the point that Paul came to. He used to think that salvation was behavioral, that I have lust for my neighbor and I want to commit adultery, but I will restrain myself and not do it. Therefore, I have done righteousness because I've resisted the temptation to do evil. Until he saw that the commandment was thou shalt not covet and he realized all of my law keeping has no benefit. I am still just as unrighteous because you can't have righteousness through law keeping. You can only have righteousness through a new heart and right spirit. So each heavy infected baby is born with a terminal condition, which will have symptoms and will lead to death. Now, same baby grows up, has awareness, and there's a free remedy offered. Free remedy. You take it, you will be cured of your... But they refuse the remedy. Will that be their fault? That's our situation. We are not held accountable for being born in sin. What we are held accountable for is rejecting Jesus Christ. And this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men have preferred darkness, and they, and they stand condemned already, condemned by their sin condition because they would not accept the remedy that's freely offered that would give them a new heart and right spirit and transform. So what is the difference between what you believe and what Calvin believed? Well, I, I, so Calvin had a lot of things I didn't believe. He believed in predetermination. There's no free will, number one. So he didn't worship the same God that I believe. Calvin would say that God predecided beforehand that he would save some of you and he would save others. So we're basically all pawns and puppets in a pretend system that God controls. So that's not even, we're not even in the same planet. Yes, another hand. So at the end of the day, there are sins and then there is sinfulness. And we are born... Psalm 51.5, in sin, conceived in iniquity. We're born with a terminal, fear-based sin condition that none of us has the power. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. None of us has the power. And so why do people sin? Because they chose to become sinners? No, they were born sinners. They sin because they haven't yet experienced the victory through Jesus Christ to live a victorious life. That's why. They haven't yet achieved those, yeah. In an infant's immaturity, they do not have the, the rational mind to make a choice. That's right. They just respond out of their nature. That's right. Of selfishness. And the nature is not one of other-centered love. It's self-centered. And that's the corruption that we got from Adam. We inherited it. Adam did not have that in Eden. He changed himself. And God created Adam with the ability to create beings in his own image because he created them with God-like abilities. And so we are created in the image of our own parents. And you can read this widely in, in, in science. You can read it in Ellen White's writings. But if you make decisions that um, change yourself in negative ways, addictions, for instance, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be other things. You will epigenetically alter your gene expression. You pass that down three and four generations, just like the commandment says, the sins passed down three and four generations. If you gain victories, you, are in, you inherited something from your parents that was, was detrimental, but you, through God's grace, gained victories in your life. You will actually pass advantages along and strength to your kids. Your kids will have less uh, vulnerabilities to overcome. Th- this, but, the, but, but even though we are born with vulnerabilities along these lines or, or not, we are all still born in sin, conceived in iniquity. And vulnerabilities aren't sin. It is the state of sinfulness. But it's not sin self, right? It's a tendency. That is correct. But there's no salvation if somebody accepts Jesus. Right. And so sin is anything, what's, what's Paul say in Romans? Anything that is not a faith is sin. So if you are doing something that might be biologically healthy, like exercising regularly, and you're doing it because you want to have a six-pack abs so you can attract more girls, that's sin. It's not done out of faith to glorify God. It's done to glorify self. It's self-centered. That's sin. 
but because you you make muscle easily, that doesn't make you a sinner. So, so, so the point is, many people want to make sin the behaviors themselves. It is actually the motives of the heart, not the behavior. And this is uh, 1 Corinthians 13. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. You're still lost. It's still sin. Even doing self-sacrificial acts, if you're doing it without love, you're doing it for selfish reasons if there's no love. And that's, the, that's our inheritance from Adam. So we're born in a, self, in a loveless, self-centered, fear-driven state. That's this, a terminal fear condition. And we have to be reborn with hearts of love in order to have life. If you read on the White and Desire of Ages, she describes that the law of love is the law of life for the universe. And without that law on the heart, that's why I write my heart, law on your heart and mind. And so this is really important because what happens with the penal legal Roman model, it actually is used to manipulate people with fear. It's used to behaviorally control people. It's used to set up a system of religious rules if you don't do this. And this is where much of Adventism has been completely corrupted with Sabbath rules of all kinds. Uh, makes people the, the Sabbath the day of the greatest fear instead of the great... Do you understand the Sabbath is to be the day of the greatest freedom that you experience on earth? Amen. But for many Adventists and me growing up in the church, it was the day of the greatest fear and restrictions of liberty. There was very little joy in that day. Because why? It was presented as a day where you're going to get in trouble if you do, do this or don't do that or do the other thing or do this thing. You can't read this. You can't look at that. You can't go there. You can't do this. And I know people who go to church on Sabbath, but, but they, they flee out of the, uh, as soon as the sermon is over, it's straight to the parking lot because if they should meet somebody in the lobby that says to them, hey, did you, are you planning on, on watching the football game tomorrow? That's not a Sabbath topic. And if somebody said to that to them on the Sabbath, that would be sin for them. They got to leave. I know people like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Why? Because it's all rules. It's all rules. Yeah. I think John says his uh, laws are not burdensome. So understanding design law, this is where the freedom comes in the law. Use the physical health analogy. If you live in harmony with the laws of health and you have better health, you have way more freedom. You can climb stairs. You can go for a jog if you want. You can bend. You can lift. You can do lots of things. When you lose your physical health, uh, for, for any reason, it could be out of innocence. You were in an accident or something or somebody's mugged you. But it doesn't really matter why you lose your health. If you lose your health, and most people in America are losing their health because they live an unhealthy lifestyle of various kinds. But if you lose your health, you lose freedom. You can't climb stairs. You can't go on the hike. You can't go play with your grandkids. You can't go for a swim. You can't, I mean, your, your life becomes more and more and more restricted as you lose health. Uh, and, and we lose health when we violate the laws of health. And the same thing's true spiritually. If we are living out of harmony with God's design laws, we are not free. The more we harmonize and live out his laws, the more freedoms we have. And so the big trap of Satan is that his laws are like Roman laws and that you live under fear of being policed with a, you know, an angel recording everything you've done that will one day have to answer for. And I, I can't tell you, there's no joy there. You know what's so neat, though, is that this gift, as you speak of the remedy of a, of a baby, there's no time limit on that. It's, 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 it's not like an order before midnight. It's, it's, it's good. It's good for whenever you want to take it. So you can decline that offer over and over again, but it's still there for you. So I'm going to say there is a time limit. The time he doesn't tell you no. But there is a time limit. His, his, his gift is always there, but the time limit is on as long as there's viability, as long as there's living tissue to be saved. Once, the, once we pass a point, you might say physical death, 
okay? The, t- yeah. the, the, the offer's still there, but the time limit's over, okay? But there's another, there's short of that. And when we take spiritually, this is what the unpardonable sin is. It is the persistence in rebellion against God's kingdom such that you permanently burn out of your own heart and mind the faculties that are sensitive to the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth and love. But that's not him taking that gift away. No. Nope. You right. declining so the, too much you right. don't want it. That's, that's correct. So you seared your conscience, hardened your heart to the point that even though the, the gift, the remedy is still available, you, will, you absolutely will not want it, okay? So your opportunity to be saved or healed from it is, is gone. Um, but, but the remedy would still be available from him, Yes, but, but, but I say that because many people think under the idea, he'll always have the remedy available. That means I can always take it whenever I want. Oh, no. Uh, it will always be available, but if you persist long enough, uh, you may actually destroy the faculties so that there's nothing in you that responds to truth and love anymore. There's nothing more God can do for you. And that's where he says, Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. There's nothing more I can do. And that's why we don't want people to persist in sin. It hardens the heart, sears the conscience, and makes them less susceptible to hear the movements of the Holy Spirit working on the heart. So when we're one back to trust, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we receive the attributes of Christ, we experience love rather than fear. We experience that we are precious to God. We actually experience that. We, we were afraid that no one could love us. We, we saw our own sin. We saw our own deformity. We were convinced that if anybody could see the corruption inside us, we would be rejected. But we met Jesus. And like the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. They experience that they are loved. And in that love, we, we open the heart and, and we experience his grace, his forgiveness, the removal of the guilt and the shame. We get new hearts and right spirits. It's no longer I that live. I have a new life. Uh, it's Christ that lives in me. And we are recreated with new motives and new desires that are not natural to the carnal heart. I want you to understand this. When you have motives to actually love somebody in a godly way, that did not come from your birth heart. That's the Holy Spirit working in your heart. And with a new heart, with those new motives, we have to choose. We will find ourselves after the rebirth, after we've given our, our life to Christ, you will find yourself in positions over and over again where you're going to have to choose to forgive or to resent, to bless those who persecute you, as Paul says, or curse those who persecute you. You're going to have to make that choice. Whether you do it out loud or just in your head and heart, you're going to make, to make that choice. Over and over again, you're going to have to make choices. Do I apply the grace that I've received from God in how I graciously treat others? Do I apply the methods of God? Do I present truth in love, leave people free? Or do I let the fear of what might happen cause me to use the levers of power in my society to coerce the consciences of others so we all can be safe? under the guise of, I'm just saving lives. As we choose to act upon the new desires, choose to live in the new ways, we receive power from God to succeed. The power is not ours. The choice is ours. The power is God's. But we don't get the power to, over any victory until we make the choice. And this is where many Christians struggle they'll pray for the victory before they've actually really chosen their heart to be free of the problem. Many Christians will pray, set me free, set me free from this, set me free from that, set me free of the other thing. But they don't actually make the choice to put the cigarettes down and not buy anymore. Stop going to the bar. Get rid of their crack pipe. 
They don't actually make the choices. So they're asking for the power, but they're not actually making the choices. God will not empower us until we make the choice. He will bring us to conviction. The Holy Spirit will convict us, lead us to the choices that we need to make. But the choices are we're left completely free to make the choice or not the choice. But as soon as we make the choice of righteousness, Holy Spirit is there to empower us to succeed. We're not ever left to do it on our own strength. Thank you for that. And this is how we mature and grow. And we have victory from, from victory to victory. And it is in this cooperative relationship with Jesus that we are not only reborn, which is called justification or set right in heart with God, but we are transformed, which is called sanctification, matured, perfected, developed in our relationship with God, Jesus Christ. And thus we become partakers of the divine nature through the indwelling spirit bringing the victory of Christ into into our hearts. Our good works, good works then, are the unavoidable result of, of hearts that are recreated to love what Christ loves. A thief who is reborn to Christ stops stealing. A liar reborn to Christ becomes honest. An abusive spouse becomes a protector who sacrifices self for their spouse like Christ sacrificed for the church. A cheat becomes loyal. None of these works of righteousness earn anything. They are the result of the outgrowth, the fruit of a heart that is no longer operating on fear and protect me and get what I can get, but a heart that working on, I trust God with my my future and I love and honor him and I want to help and love others. It's a heart motive change. And then in the, uh, we're going to close, I think, on this portion. We've got about eight minutes left. In the second paragraph, the lesson states, Gentiles, and, and, and Brad, I want to thank you for asking those questions. I appreciate that. I really do. And, and I encourage you, do it more, because it helps us. It really does. Doesn't it help us? Yeah. Yes. 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 So, so thank you. Gentiles, once excluded from worship in sacred places of the temple, now join Jewish believers in becoming one we too become part of God's church, a holy temple in the Lord. And um, the, the question, uh, what is the purpose of the Old Testament sanctuary temple service? And rather than dragging this out because we're short on time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, unpack for you a Desire of Ages 161 and see if you agree with this author's interpretation of the purpose of that Old Testament sanctuary service. I like it. Um, In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as the Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was to be an object lesson. What's an object lesson? It's pointing to some larger reality. It's not the reality itself. So the temple is not the reality. It's an illustration of something else. Okay, an object lesson for Israel and the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being, from the bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the creator. What kind of temple is this? In such a te- is such a temple suggested here, composed one that's composed of living beings? Is that what's being described? Yeah. Yeah. And is that type of a temple made with human hands? 
Okay, keep that in mind. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the divine one. But but by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. What do you think that purpose is? God dwells in humanity. And through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again his temple. Again, what kind of temple is this? God designed that the temple of Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building they regarded with so, so much pride. What about Christians today? Have Christians today understood that building historically? That it simply is an object lesson of your soul? I don't think so. Have Adventists with their sanctuary doctrine understood that it was an object lesson of cleansing hearts and minds? Or, or is there some legal mechanism going on in a building in heaven? Continuing on. They did not yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit. The courts of the temple at Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sensual passion and unholy thoughts. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin, from the earthly desires, the selfish loves, the evil habits, and the corrupt uh, that corrupt the soul. And then she quotes out of Malachi three one through three. Uh, about the Lord that you seek will suddenly come to his temple and he will come as a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap and he will purify the sons of Levi, purge them as silver or gold. But notice this here. In cleansing the temple, the world's buyers and sellers, he announced his mission to cleanse the hearts and minds of the defilement of sin. Wait, she was clearly mistaken, right? Supposed to say in cleansing the temple, he's announcing his mission to go up into heaven and open record books and erase books in heaven of bad deeds that people committed. I like this description. This is reality, folks. Sin does not happen in record books. Sin happens in living beings. And you cannot eradicate sin by erasing recorded data of those events. You can only eradicate sin by eradicating it out of the living temples, the hearts and minds of people. And that's what he came to do. And then, you may know this, she quoted right here, Malachi 3, 1 through 3, it's in that quotation. But you may know this, that, that she also equated Daniel 8.14 in Malachi 3 is describing the same event. Notice this in Great Controversy. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 8.14, the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days is represented in Daniel 7.13, and the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi are descriptions of the same event. The cleansing of the sanctuary message is not about cleansing record books in heaven. It's what we just read in Desire of Ages, where she quoted that very passage. It's cleansing the hearts and minds of sinners from sin. That's the message. I have other quotes that would say the same thing. In Wednesday's lesson, in the paragraph, second paragraph says, while unity is a theological certainty, it requires our hard work. So we should always be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. One way each of us may do so is by being an active part of the body of Christ. Every member is a gifted part of the body and should contribute to the health of it. And all should benefit by the work of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These, like ligaments and tendons, have a unifying function, helping us grow together into Christ, who is the head of the body. It's absolutely, we, we talked a little bit about this in the last lesson about how we function best when we all uh, uh, fulfill the gifts that we have, work together, common cause, common purpose. And I like the idea that the lesson is advocating that we do the best when we all do our role, our part, what the Lord has called us to do in the body. I like that. But what I have noticed 
and see if you've noticed this, over the last 13 years, as a pattern that has emerged across the denomination, we get emails from all over the, the world, literally all over the world, that people who present the, the design law view of things in their local church, and then these are people who have been head elders for years, have been Sabbath school teachers for years, have, have given sermons in their church for years, years. As soon as they begin to present this design law message in their church, that the legalistic leadership of the church immediately censors them, tells them that they're welcome to come and visit, but they can't speak anymore, that they can't use the gifts God has given them anymore, they can't teach, they can't hold office, and eventually, if they continue to share this material, they're asked to not fellowship anymore. What I have not seen is that those of us who hold the design law message do that. We don't fear people questioning us and having the legal questions because the legal questions always fall apart when you actually put it in the light of design law. It just never holds up to objective reality. And so we never fear the questions. We invite the questions. I like the questions because it, it, it gives, makes, us, makes us reprocess and, and really dig into the true meaning of things. But truth loses nothing by close investigation. And those who don't hold to the design law reality of things, but hold to this fantasy view of an imperial dictator God who makes up rules, they can't tolerate the light shining in, and thus they extinguish it from their congregations. And what's happened to the church is it's getting what we call in medicine a selection bias. What's a selection bias? A selection bias is when you select out and eliminate from the population people who have certain attributes or certain traits. And we're eliminating from the congregation the people who actually have the the third angel's message in its true uh, design law perspective. We're pushing them out of the denominational body to continue to reinforce the penal legal authority. This started in 1888, and it persists in our church today. Yes? Yes, isn't it like Jews of old, these people are saying we can't do this because it's a pride of their own good works. And that's why they can't accept what you're saying. So good works can often mean religious works, but for me it's more along the lines of ego that many of the people in, in power and authority um, are, have written books, written articles, given lectures, spoken, and presented things in a certain way. And to accept the design law view would mean that much of their life's work was false. And they would have to say, you know what, the 30 years I've taught this, my, my two treatises that I've written on penal substitution theology, I have to admit that that's not true. Uh, and, and people have a hard time admitting that their life work is, is, is infected with a distortion of idea. But and they could become like Paul. They could become like Paul. That's exactly right. And some, I know some who have done this, and that's exactly right. But, but uh, uh, in the Sanhedrin that we have recorded in Scripture, uh, we, have, we have Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and then Paul. You know, three, three um, out of the 70. So the majority, at least recorded, didn't, didn't have that experience. So I, I don't, this is why I, kind, I, our ministry tries to approach things as you see the New Testament church leadership doing. Jesus didn't in any way seek to make um, reform at the Sanhedrin level of society. He went to the people with the gospel message. So did the apostles. He didn't seek to antagonize them, but he didn't seek to reform the system uh, through the, the political mechanisms of their system. Yeah. It, just, it, 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 just, it was a waste of energy. Right. 
okay? So our, our view is to present the truth in love, leave people free. And I think from the populace, we will have a great groundswell of people who embrace this message, irrespective of what the institution is, is doing. And one of the problems with institutions is once they become institutions, they often become focused on protecting the institutions at the expense of the people. I mean, it's better for one man to die than the nation. That was a quote, by the way. And that's also why you couldn't be an Adventist minister. Yeah. If bringing this information, it goes against all the teaching and all the Adventists. We've had multiple Adventist pastors tell us over the years that they could not present this message and remain employed. That they were told that they would lose their job if they presented this message. That's right. So there isn't. I mean, just I'm just even though they were convinced, and some of them left the left the left the pastorate because they were convicted that this is the message. It'd be like Paul could not maintain his position with the Sanhedrin once his Damascus Road position. They would not let him teach as an official representative of Judaism anymore because he didn't present the message that they had. And so it's the same dynamic. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We ask that you will continue uh, to bless this message all over the world. Those who are, are experiencing it, sharing it, empower them, settle your people, enlighten the world, and may you come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.